Hello and welcome to the Beginning by Thinking show. Today we have a new interesting concept. That's new to this podcast, it's not really a new concept. All we're doing is we're discussing various current political issues, dedicating a whole podcast to finding some grains of truth within a, uh, a deeply um, swampy bureaucratic media system which finds itself a little bit morally blind and morally bankrupt. And hopefully down the line we can get various people on from various different political opinions to really battle it out and iron out a proper uh, opinion and see where we go from there. So this, obviously, I can cast a very wide net. I can talk about anything I like. Um, in today's episode, I've decided to talk about UK military spending. Um, so we're going to dive into the details. We're going to try and understand what the purpose of the military is and how much we allocate, whether it's wise to, um, and whether we need to allocate more or less or divert funds in a more um, diverse manner. Uh, so, let's just jump straight into the episode. First of all, I'd like to get some of the numbers out the way first. So, according to the economic budget of 2020 to 2021, on chart one of public sector spending, shows the total defence fund allocation to be around £60 billion. And to truly understand this gargantuous sum of money, I can only apply the context of how other funds are allocated. So I can say education has a fund of £124 billion, and the most expensive uh, of, of all the public sector fundings is social protection, coming in at an astonishing £302 billion. This, of course, is outsourcing the total GDP of most third world countries um, and is a, an incredibly large number to be working with. But I think we need to start to truly understand how it's allocated. What are the do's and don'ts um, when it comes to military uh, and military spending? And I'd like to initially uh, disclose three red lights of what I believe to be a dangerous way of spending uh, funds for the military. The first red light is don't show off. Don't spend on your military to look impressive. That's exactly what militaristic states do. That's what you get from North Korea. That's what you get from China and Russia. Russia do it on a weekly basis. And we know North Korea pump out their militaristic parades, uh, showing off their fake nuclear bombs and their fiberglass tanks, uh, which I believe to be the case that they have actually um, used inflatable equipment in their parades as military equipment and try to make it pass to the public. Um, we don't show off. You spend on your military to find a goal and you do it to fit the goal. You don't show off. That's the first red light. The second is don't spend on your military to antagonize other states, especially other states that oppose your ideology. Um, it's all well and good having an army to protect yourself. But to build an army for the sole reason to, to make other states feel nervous of your presence is only going to lead to a, um, uh, a flexing match that will only go to war and go, to, uh, go wrong. It's like when bodybuilders um, obsess over their bodies. They do it so much they start pumping steroids in them. 
Uh, and that obviously leads them to die at a young age. And not only that, it leads to roid rage and uh, sudden inconsistent movements in attitude and temper. That's exactly what will happen if nations build armies for the sole reason of antagonizing other states to impose fear. Uh, this is something that China would love to be able to do. It's just a shame that most of their military equipment is old Soviet gear and um, is fairly defunct and useless. That's the second red light. I'd like to establish the third and final red light in my don't spend military funds for this reason, which is don't spend military funds to stoke nationalism. I think if you are spending your military funds to uh, make it so your country feels proud to salute the flag, um, to feel proud of the country, I think that leads you on a one-way path directly to authoritarian fascism. And it's very unlikely you'll find yourself you turning out of that. Uh, so I think it's a huge mistake to be spending your military funds for the pure reason of stoking up nationalism to make your people more proud of your country. It doesn't work. It make your people proud of your uh, culture and your uh, innovation in science. And especially during the COVID pandemic, um, your procurement of vaccines. Don't do it by building 50,000 tanks and brand new airship carriers. It's a fool's game. How military funds are slash should be allocated I say should because I get the creeping suspicion that the current sitting government are sort of steering away from this idea. But how I believe at least military funds should be allocated, given, of course, the intentions and the state of ideologically opposing nations and military blocs, is to fulfil a quota, and it should achieve no more or no less than the itinerary of the carefully conscripted quota. Now, this military quota should include many things, but I've tried to list some of the main priorities that should be within said quota, and I've come up with three foundational pillars, um, uh, probably in list of uh, most relevant to least relevant, and there are so many more um, items to consider in a military quota. Um, or even when it comes to just mere uh, defence spending. But I think these three would be a core, a, a fundamental base, let's go with. The first one is the protection and the security of the freedom of all citizens living in British-owned territories, including overseas territories like Gibraltar, Falklands and the British Virgin Islands. This I consider to be probably the main... Um, the main goal or the main propensity of the military force is to provide protection for the citizens within and the government within. That to me, I think, could, in its shortest, most compact way possible, describe the whole purpose of the military. But I think there are many more nuances we need to dive into before we just say, that's all that's needed of the military, let's move on. I think next, the ability and the means to intervene if an allied force is under threat, um, because an alliance would mean nothing if it cannot be enacted upon. What good is your word if it has no meaning to it? Uh, it's like, um, it's like uh, telling a friend that if, if they'll fall, we'll catch you. We'll, we'll always catch you once you fall. That's a, 
verbal alliance that will never uh, be destroyed. And when that friend is falling, uh, you know, making up some flimsy excuse like, ah, well, we're busy at the minute, so, you know, you should have sort of considered that before you accepted our promise. You have to stick to your word. And don't go into an alliance if you don't feel as if you can enact upon it. You almost need to go through the mental trauma of enacting upon uh, an alliance to the magnitude it's agreed upon uh, before you go anywhere further with making any agreements. And that would mean there would be a lot less alliances uh, in the world and states would suffer on the world stage because of that. But a prime example that springs to mind is... Uh, uh, allies to NATO in the Indo-Pacific region who have been uh, slightly more forgiving, or I think a more appropriate word would be shilling towards the CCP for their own economic interests and going against what NATO have actually recommend uh, and what they've actually recommended um, in the prior agreed alliance, essentially meaning that some of the regions in the Indo-Pacific are going against their NATO alliances. Uh, so if you can't back up your alliances, if you don't have the means to do so, if you're not financially stable enough, if you don't have a big enough military, then don't go into one in the first place. There's no point in using your word if it has zero meaning. Now, the third point, and probably the least important of the three, though that could be a, a point of contention, especially with recent events, is the military's duty to provide national crisis relief. An example prior to the coronavirus would be flooding. If there was flooding in a certain district area, um, then the military can come along and assist and, and, you know, perform crisis relief. Now, given the COVID pandemic, uh, the military's involvement in helping with the logistical side of vaccination centres um, has been utterly imperative to the success in the vaccine rollout. Probably more imperative than the actual procurement of contracts. Because if you didn't have the means to distribute the vaccine, you would just have uh, shelves and shelves of vaccines, or boxes of vaccines, um, just going out of date. Because there'll be no means to properly uh, administer all the paid-for vaccines. So the military's involvement in helping to, uh, with just the logistical assistance and also the um, actual assistance in uh, doing the, the jabs, I think has been immensely important. There are, of course, many other aspects to consider when developing a wider strategic framework, uh, like the importance of global politics and foreign aid. However, I'd like to concentrate mainly on the topic of UK military funding. Um, and we won't cover nuclear weapons for the time being. I think that deserves a whole podcast in its own right. Um, and it will be a topic of conversation I will get onto. And hopefully I can get some guests on to um, uh, add in an extra opinion, uh, an extra few opinions. So there's a more diverse scale of opinions going on when it comes to nuclear weaponry. Uh, but I think that deserves a conversation in its own right. Okay, there's a case study I want to get to about UK military spending, uh, which is all too recent, I might add. 
it's the HMS Queen Elizabeth, the aircraft carrier, um, of which the program cost itself 6.1 billion, and the unit cost was 3 billion. And it's this massive 65,000 ton ship, and to be fair, it's a marvel of engineering. It's it's an incredible ship, but it's a prime example of foolish military spending that crosses all three red lights set out earlier, and in fact goes to exceed them in their pointlessness. First of all, it was employed to display Britain's power of the sea, which strikes down the don't-show-off red light. Next, it was deployed to the Middle East and was also accompanied by NATO vessels near the Russian border in the Black Sea, ahead of the conference between President Biden and President Putin, which strikes the red light of uh, antagonising unnecessarily. Johnson himself actually admitted that the HMS Elizabeth project was designed to display the soft and hard power of the UK to its people and to the world. This is striking the red light which is to stoke nationalism. Uh, the irony of this all being that the airship carrier, as a product of war, is beginning to leave uh, the lines of relevance behind, and it's starting to enter the history books. First World Warfare has gone far beyond the realm of aircraft carriers. It's about hacking government material, economic espionage, and challenging your adversary by strategy and diplomacy rather than all-out warfare. Which begs me to ask the question, what is the purpose of this aircraft carrier? We know for a fact um, that Dominic Cummings said in his questioning from the Select Committee that Trump got in contact with the UK government to go on a bombing escapade in Iraq. So is this a potential precursor to yet more bombing of the Middle East? Or is this just an example of foolish spending from Westminster? Either way, I'm not sure it looks too good. I certainly don't think it's a very, um, I don't think it's a very wise allocation of military funding. But that's it from the Beginning by Thinking show today. Make sure you tune in next time, though it's not tuning in, it's more clicking and listening. Um, but make sure whatever you do, you do it. Uh, and try to give the podcast a review whether good or bad i don't mind i can take the uh criticism uh and i wish you a lovely day bye bye